So, Renee, how many years has it been? Oh, gosh. Um, five, maybe? No. Seven. Seven years. Seven. Seriously. Yep, that long. That's how long we've been off the air. How could the world possibly go seven years without hearing your voice, David? I mean, I know. That's exactly what I'd like to know. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, that was sarcasm. Oh, was it? Oh, missed it. Mm-hmm. Hello, my name is David Leet, and I'm the founder and publisher of Leet's Culinario. And I'm Renee Shetler, the site's editor-in-chief. And this is our rebooted, restarted, Talking With My Mouthful podcast. Think of it kind of as a version 2.0. Exactly. Talking 2.0. I like that. And while we're getting things together, lining up all these brilliant chefs and cookbook authors and bloggers and culinary creatives, we wanted to give you just a little something. Yeah, kind of like, uh, think of it as like an oral abuse-bouche, like A-U-R-A, well, how do I spell A-U-R-A-L, abuse-bouche, if you will. And um, so we've gathered all the best essays that we have on the site. Uh, you'll notice they're all written by David. Well, yeah, that's, that's all we have. Liar? <laughs> oh... Anyways, we put them together in one episode. Right. So sit back, relax, and nibble on some of these golden oldies. Oh, God. That makes me sound like a real old person, doesn't it, Renee? No comment. You know the kind, the true bastions of testosterone. The ones so thick with blue smoke, the neon beer signs look like UFOs hovering in a patch of midnight fog. It wasn't for moral or religious reasons, lack of money, or even an alcohol problem that prompted me to slink out, emasculated, never to return. It was because I was a phony. While other guys swapped J-Lo fantasies or nearly came to blows defending their classic El Caminos, all I could think about was a commercial-style Viking stove in white enamel. I stared into the mirror, tawny with nicotine, and dreamed about how perfectly risen my white chocolate cloud cake would be, thanks to my baffled heat convection oven. The slow disenfranchisement of my manhood, as one friend likes to call it, began eight years ago when I took my first cooking class. I walked into the kitchen, and there, lined up against the wall, were three hulking 48-inch Vikings, gleaming like a row of squat sumo wrestlers. I was smitten. Their unqualified size and power thrilled me. Was this what my father felt when he walked with mouth agape through the lawnmower department at Sears? My enthusiasm, though, lasted until I got home. The most my postage stamp sized kitchen could handle was a mini-me version of the Colossi from class. Not to be outmaneuvered by Manhattan real estate, I opted instead for the still-manly, 30-inch model for my weekend home in Connecticut. That big boy was big enough to come with bragging rights and delicate enough to turn out flawless tweels. 
Of course, buying this monster would require some creative accounting, because, thanks to a suicidal economy, the money I had set aside for a rainy day had long ago evaporated. Cashing in my paltry IRA was clearly out of the question, so I looked around for something to sell. My eye landed on my 1987 Mercedes, which I had christened Sadie. My heart sank. That old car had taken me everywhere, and I adored her. I stood in the kitchen looking at the catalog, chock-a-block with shiny new Vikings, and then at Sadie. Vikings, Sadie. Vikings, Sadie. After some haggling, I got just enough for the Mercedes dealership to buy the stove. Once alone with my coveted Viking, which I immediately nicknamed Thor, I whipped out a batch of cookie dough I had made earlier that morning. I fired up the oven and scooped out nine identical balls of the stuff. I slid them into the inferno and waited precisely ten minutes. When I opened the door, I realized I had a steep learning curve ahead of me. My cookies had been, for lack of a better descriptive, incinerated. I was undeterred. It was simply a matter of learning the ranger's distinctive personality, I told myself. Well, it took ruining a cobbler, two chickens, a lemon tart, and a dozen more cookies before I was able to harness Thor's might. But after that, I could roast any fowl my butcher threw my way, saute the crunchiest sweetbreads, and turn out an almond financier with a crumb so fine, even Julia Child would be jealous. Last night, I crept downstairs to look at Thor, not unlike how those men in car commercials tiptoe up to the garage and curl up to sleep inside their new BMWs. I ran my fingers along the sleek, sexy door handle. I revved up each burner to its full 15,000 BTUs. I thought of the guys at the Marbledale pub in their raucous one-upmanship. I imagined marching back in there with my towering white chocolate cake, the killer version with the pistachio buttercream frosting. I place it on the bar amid the overflowing ashtrays and empty beer cans and watch. Conversation about Heidi Klum sputters to a halt, and the brutes begin to circle. Without waiting for forks, one digs in, then another, and another, caveman-like. And as they give themselves over to the pleasures of French butter and imported white chocolate, the machismo vanishes. And when the plate is empty, they rush me, offering the keys to their Dodge Ram pickups and to their girlfriend's apartment in exchange for one more impossibly perfect bite of cake. I toss back my head and laugh. I turn and saunter out the door, leaving them despondent. I win. I am victorious. A little sage advice. Be careful what you say about yourself, because yesterday's jest could be tomorrow's character-defining statement. Let me explain. Nineteen years ago, the one and I were invited for a wintry weekend in Washington, Connecticut, long before we ever bought a home there. We were guests of our then-brand-spanking new friends, Maddie and Janet. Now, Janet had worked with the one in real estate for a few years, but this was the second time we were in Maddie's company. How to describe Maddie? Born and raised in the Bronx, he could have walked on the set of The Sopranos, sat down alongside Sal Big Pussy, Pauly, and Silvio, and no one, not even the director, would have been the wiser. He says things like beautiful when he means beautiful. He's all diamond pinky rings and sharp suits and comb back hair. 
He hits the racetracks in Saratoga Springs, New York, and Baden-Baden, Germany, in equal measure, and usually wins. Bottom line, had it not been for Janet, our worlds never would have collided. Late one February night, after dinner that the one and I had cooked for them, I was complaining that I was tired of my advertising copywriting job. So what's the matter? Do something else, Maddie said, as casually as if I were grousing that the ice cream parlor was out of my favorite flavor. I paused. What do you want to do with your life, kid? And without so much as a millisecond of hesitation, out came the words, and from where I know not, I want to lie in bed in pink fluffy slippers and eat bonbons all day. Well, he paused. And then he burst out laughing. No, I'm not laughing, wheezing. See, Maddie has a high, fatally infectious hyena wheeze. Then we were all laughing. And from that night, I have never been allowed to forget my offhanded comment. So much so that I've been given boxes of bonbons over the years and even fluffy slippers. Now, mercifully, none pink and thankfully, not a marabou mule among them. So what does all this have to do with Mother's Day, you ask? A lot. I think any time Hallmark and local bakeries conspire to make a special day for you in order to make money for them, everything from birthdays to bridal showers, it's a cue to indulge. And to me, the height of indulgence is lying in bed with a box of candies, preferably toysters, watching the Today Show, Modern Family, Glee, and my new favorite, Body of Proof. Slippers are optional. And that's exactly what I do on Mother's Day. If I were a mother and I had my own brood, I'd make it clear to all who could hear my voice, pets included, that this is my day. And my day requires that all whom I've spent the past 364 days catering to suddenly turn into my flunkies. Bow down unto me, I'd bellow, and take delight as they genuflect at the foot of my bed, watching their heads slowly, stubbornly drop, revealing the Antarctica-shaped ball spot of the one and the unruly cowlicks of my progeny. I'd order up a menu the likes of which had never been seen or eaten in my bed, everything made by them and presented unto me. I'd start with a mother of a Mother's Day drink, maybe a sparkling ginger daisy. Now, if I were in a breakfasty mood, I'd call out for Sunday morning pancakes or Cafe Benedict, and maybe even both. And in the very likely event that I lolled in bed past noon, I'd place an order for Leonay's salad making sure my little ones left nary a gossamer veil of white hanging from the poached eggs. Pea shoots and goat cheese salad could feature prominently if I were counting calories, but, I mean, who would? It's my day, and on my day, physics wouldn't deign to bore me with anything as trivial as calories, which is why risotto alla milanese would never be out of the question. Ah, uh, and then there's dessert. Nothing would be more fitting for Mother's Day than peanut butter pretzel bonbons and mocha hazelnut truffles. All I'd need is Maddie, my own personal wise guy, feeding them to me to make it all beautiful. Nothing elicits mock pity at a cocktail party faster than when I complain food writing is really a hard job. Until the head-on assault of the Food Network a decade ago, food writing made even soft journalism, such as fashion and gardening, look butch. But average Americans now know their chefs and food writers like they know the members of their favorite rock bands or sports teams. Despite our boost up the food chain, so to speak, I still maintain being a hired belly should come with hazard pay. Few other jobs pose such a peril to your health. 
Every day I go to work is one day farther away from being able to wear flat front khakis. And while I won't divulge how much weight I've gained, let's just say I've moved several suit sizes to the right on the clothes rack at Brooks Brothers. Although most of my friends look at me with thinly veiled contempt when I say it, it's still an immutable truth. Travel food writing is the hardest of all. How can being paid to eat in a fabulous foreign city and stay at a cushy five-star hotel be hard, they ask? Well, put yourself in my shoes, I suggest. There you are in, say, Siena. You're armed with a list of restaurant recommendations given to you by the Kulinista Underground, a group made up of food professionals, online foodies, and your neighbor's cleaning lady who just happened to have grown up in the city in question. And to top it off, someone else is picking up the tab. This should be a cakewalk, you brag. You'll knock off the restaurants in two days and have the rest of the time to sightsee. You visit the first place, a small, overpriced restaurant now overrun with tourists, where you pay for the spectacular view of the Tuscan Hills, certainly not the food. So you try the second place. The dainty, family-run trattoria wedged between a cobbler and a tinsmith is not so twee as to be annoying, but not exactly worth writing home about either. And so it goes. Most of the restaurants get crossed off the list for sundry reasons. Finally, you have only two days left and no story. Niente. You accost the concierge at your hotel, hoping he has a special place that would be a perfect hook. You speak in a flurry of pidgin Italian, broken French, and cobbled-together Spanish as you try charming favorite spots out of the locals. Your guidebooks, filled with carefully annotated post-it notes of all the art you had planned to take in, lie on the bed, neglected. Out of desperation, you start eating two lunches and two dinners every day. One night, you find yourself facing a 15-course pee-in to Hilltown cooking that finally gives you the central theme to your piece. Unfortunately, you pick at your food because not 30 minutes earlier, you were done in by a marvelous but mammoth seven-course meal. Back home, you avoid the scale for a week, and when you finally check, you're up 11 pounds. And still no compassion. Of course, these same friends without pity are the first to treat me like a walking food encyclopedia or a human zagat survey. I was at dinner recently with a fellow writer from Geneva who put several questions to me. Why are French fries called French when they originated in Belgium? Why is the main course in America called an entree when that's the French word for starter? And why do Americans use the term maitre d' by itself when you have to be a maitre of something? such as a maitre d'hôtel. Suddenly, I was mentally hopscotching from Antwerp to France to the dining rooms of the Plaza Atine when all I wanted to do was enjoy my plate of tasty Memphis barbecue ribs. But all this badgering has offered up one benefit. I've found a fail-safe way of putting the skids to the Inquisition when it gets out of hand. I simply ask, didn't you read my last article? It was all in there. An awkward pause and a wan smile usually follow affording me just enough respite to make it through dinner uninterrupted. I'm a slave to my belly Cause I've got to be fed Every morning Well, it lifts me out of bed It says, go to work for me, baby Buy me some bread and some wine
I've been a haunted man for 13 years, and I put the blame squarely on Tiny Tim's crooked little shoulders. It was December 1990, and I had just finished rereading A Christmas Carol. Inspired by Tiny's exultant prayer, God bless us, everyone, I decided that I, too, would have a proper Christmas dinner. The next day, I marched into my local butcher shop in Brooklyn and ordered a goose. Luigi, a short, rotund man who had a stand on a milk crate to talk to his customers, leaned over the meat case and cocked an eyebrow. Have you ever made a goose before? Please, plenty of times, I replied, even though the only experience I had cooking fowl was microwaving Swanson turkey dinners. On Christmas Day, I awoke early to prepare the goose. To ensure a moist bird, I tucked pats of butter under its skin, then slid it into the oven. After several hours, I checked to see if the magic thermometer had popped up, signaling the goose was done. But I couldn't find one. Anywhere. I yanked the goose out of the oven, sloshing a tsunami of melted fat on the floor. I turned the bird over and over, looking for that confounded popper. Just then, the doorbell rang. I returned the goose to the oven and hoped for the best. As my five guests sipped Diet Coke and nibbled from an artfully arranged platter of Doritos and Lipton onion dip, I excused myself and ran back into the kitchen. I returned, ushering everyone to their seats. I placed the goose on the table and began carving. But every time I sliced, I hit bone. No matter what angle I tried, the knife simply slid off. <laughs> so much for Christmas is coming, the goose is getting fat, I tried to joke, as I strip-mined the bird for meat with a fork. Eventually, I gave up and divided the two legs among six plates. My guests looked down at their pitifully small portions and smiled weakly. After everyone left, I cleaned up. Furious, I grabbed the platter and flipped the goose into the trash. And there, staring up at me, were two perfectly plump breasts. In my frantic search for the magic thermometer, I had turned the goose upside down and laid a card from its scrawny, meatless back. In the intervening years, I'm happy to report that I have become a whiz at roasting, except goose. Last week, while visiting Danny Pring, a Connecticut neighbor, I recounted my tale. And you haven't made a Christmas goose since, she bellowed. An expat from England who's blessed with an alto's lungs and cursed with a hearing problem. Danny clocks in at a decibel level just below that of a Boeing 747. Nope, I said. Well, next weekend, we're marching into your kitchen, and I'm going to show you how it's done properly, she announced. The day of our lesson, Danny burst into my kitchen with her arms filled with bottles, scraps of papers, herbs, and two roasting pans. Look, she said, waving a carving fork that would do the Marquis de Sade proud. For inflicting the jabs, you have to prick the goose all over to drain the fat, she added. I took the bird from the refrigerator, and Danny trundled over, cooing, My, that is a proper Christmas goose, David. She took it from me, then she stood as if in a trance. Danny, what's wrong, I asked. She put her fingers to her lips, lowered her head, then said softly, well, softly for Danny, now's the time to think of all the people who have ever borne a grudge against you, and you go for it. With that, 
she descended upon the bird with her carving fork. To judge from the ferocity of her stabs and the contentment on her face, my guess was she was fantasizing about Tony Blair. When she was done, she leaned against the counter and trumpeted, Boy, was that cathartic! She looked like a boxer who had just won a prize fight. So what's next, I asked. She slipped the bird in the oven. Well, you sit here and mind Goosey, and I'll be back in a couple of hours. What? Why, I asked. She looked at me as if I were daft. I'm knackered, she said. And with that, she tromped out the back door. The directions are on the table, she barked from her car. Without Danny there to guide me, I was immediately haunted by the goose of Christmas past. I riffled through her scraps of paper. One read that the bird needed to be turned three times. Turned, I said aloud. Another read, drain the fat. But when? Visions of snickering guests danced in my head. Still, I knew that if I didn't face this bete noir head-on, I'd probably develop a severe tick every time I was served foie gras. So I made some quick calculations and estimated when to turn the goose and poured off fat several times, lest there be another flood. When I removed the goose, it was nothing like the catastrophe I had wrought in my youth. It was a beautiful mahogany color with a crackly, crispy crust. One last hurdle, though, before I could be free of my demons. I poked the top of the bird. Yes, just as I thought. It was a lovely, juicy breast. Twenty minutes later, Danny muscled through the door. When she saw the goose, her face clouded over. She leaned in close, inspecting. She tilted the bird one way, then the other. Finally, she said, Brilliant, David! I beamed. She transferred the bird to a platter and held it aloft. Behold the goose, she crowed. Then she thrust her chin toward the dining room. Now, good God, let's eat! Tiny Tim himself couldn't have said it better. Uh, that was a velvety voice, David Lee, at his best. Oh, Renee, go on. No, really. Go on. Keep on going on. Say more things about me. No. <laughs> that was enough. <laughs> Everyone stay tuned to this channel for more soon. Sure. And remember, you can subscribe to Talking With My Mouthful on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, all your favorite channels and all your favorite sources of music. Talk to you soon. <laughs>